All right, Matthew 13 is our passage we're looking at today. So today we'll look at Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43. These are the parables of the kingdom. The parables of the kingdom. And one of the questions that this text is helping to answer for us is why does God allow evil to flourish? Is God all-powerful or not? Well, some, some have, have actually come to the conclusion that God is not all-powerful because evil is flourishing. Can you see how someone would come to that conclusion? Is God good or is God all-powerful? Well, some, some have, have come to the conclusion that God, God is either good or He's all-powerful, and He can't be both at the same time. Well, He's both, in case you're wondering. But how do we reconcile that in Scripture? Well, as we come to these parables, uh, a lot of people struggle with these, these parables. Uh, is, is that you? Do you struggle with to understand Jesus' parables? Find them easy or hard? How, how, do, how, do, you, how do you answer that question? Well, as we seek Jesus' meaning in the parables, and by the way, that is what we should do, find Jesus' meaning. What did He mean? Not, do, not what does it mean to you, but what did Jesus mean? Uh, we should look in the surrounding context for clues about the questions Jesus is answering by the parable. And uh, so in case you've forgotten what the context is, the theme of Matthew 11, chapter 11 through 12 dealt with this conscious, volitional disbelief versus humble, obedient faith. And so particularly the religious leaders of Jesus' day came to just open oppression and rejection of Jesus and his teaching. And so there's a clue here for us in what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 13. As you look to the preceding context, Jesus is answering some questions of what's happened in chapters 11 and 12. And so this gives us a clue about the specific purpose meaning of these parables we find in in Matthew 13. In light of the growing opposition to Jesus and his uh, rejection that we see coming from Israel, Jesus actually explains here in Matthew 13, through parable form, just how the kingdom could be ignored. How can the kingdom be abused by so many people in Israel? Why is it that so many people did not recognize their Messiah. How can that be? Well, Jesus goes on to also describe how his kingdom would proceed from this point on. So these are some important issues and topics that Jesus is addressing through parable form. Remember a parable, by the way, uh, one, one I, don't, I don't know who came up with this definition, but some have said that a parable is just a, it's kind of a, a heavenly story with an earthly, uh, sorry, an, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, the other way around. So, so an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus is using stuff that people are familiar with, like farming, for example. All agricultural terms and, and actions to, to give this heavenly meaning, spiritual truth. So that's what's going on here. And the first parable that we looked at in Matthew 13 last week was the parable of the soils. 
But today we go on to talk about more farming illustrations, if you will. And the first one we want to look at here is the parable of the weeds. The parable of the weeds. Now the parable of the weeds answers two questions from the context of Matthew. Uh, First of all, the very important question, now listen to this. Why must the faithful kingdom servants live in the midst of evil on earth? Why? There's evil on earth. Everybody can see that. (laughs) But why do faithful kingdom servants have to live in the midst of the evil? Well, Jesus is going to help answer that question. Number two, is there any hope of justice and freedom from the surrounding evil? Let me, let me ask that again. Is there any hope of justice and freedom from the surrounding evil? Jesus will also help answer that question. So this parable that was, remember, given primarily to his disciples was really offering assurance and, 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 and help. It was very edifying, I'm sure, for, for Jesus' listeners to hear these stories, these parables. It offered assurance that even these convincing imposters would be weeded out in the end. So let's look at the setting here in Matthew 13. Uh, verse 24 is where we'll start. Here's, here's the setting for us. And, and, and as you can see here, starting in verse 24, the setting is, is like a wealthy farm. Think of a wealthy farm setting, and that is what we have here. Look at verse 24. He, that's Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Let's stop there. I've given you a picture here on the screen of of a uh, wheat farm in Galilee. Uh, I'm assuming that's near the Sea of Galilee. And you need to understand that this parable uh, appears to concern a wealthy landowner, and, and the reason I say that is because notice Jesus says there's many day laborers who were, who were helping this, this landowner on his farm. They were helping to take care of his farm. Only someone who is, who is quite wealthy would be able to afford to have day laborers and so we see here in in this story a couple things in this in the setting here number one we see the owner sows good seed of course he's going to sow good seed what else is he purposely going to go out and sow weeds of course not he's going to sow good seed and by the way the good seed here is said to be wheat in verse 25 notice it says these uh, they sowed uh weeds among the wheat so the good seed is wheat it's it it, by the way which was a crop for which galilee was well known for and and by the way wheat was the staple food of the roman empire of jesus day so the owner sows good seed but number two the enemy comes and then sows weeds among the wheat some translations call it tares so what are we talking about here well, in this case, the enemy, some have said, was probably a, a rival farmer. And it was not unknown in this day for, for people like this to sow 
dangerous weeds in a rival's field. In fact, uh, in the midst of my reading, I found out that the, uh, the, the Roman Empire, the Senate, uh, actually came up with a law against uh, people doing this sort of thing. So apparently it was done several times, and, and it was so destructive to, to, that, to, to not only the farmer, but the people of that day, that they actually came up with a law, and there was consequences for sowing weeds in someone's field. So it did occur. But we also see here in our passage that the weeds grow along with the wheat. And here's what one commentator said. This, I found this helpful, so let me just quote this for you. Quote, The weed was darnel, a, poison, a poisonous weed that carried a fungus that could attack the wheat as well. This plant was hard to distinguish from weed at the earliest stages. Though as soon as leaves appeared, a person could identify the narrow leaves of darnel. End quote. And so because Jesus himself explains this parable later on, at the the end of the text we're going to look at, uh, I don't think we really need to comment a whole lot at this point on what is the meaning that Jesus, Jesus is going to give that later. We'll look at that in a moment, okay? But let's come back to our text. And we see, starting here in verse 27, there's this conversation that goes on between the owner of the land and this farm and his workers. Look at verse 27. Matthew 13, verse 27 says, And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, Let them both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there's this conversation here going on between the owner of the farm and the workers. And notice there's a question that was asked by the workers. The question is, how did the weeds get there? How did those weeds actually get there? And the answer by the landowner was, well, it's the enemy that did it. And so we see here that the slaves who actually work the farm, are, they're a bit mystified by the great amount of weeds throughout the wheat field. And so they go and they, they, they notice this, and they ask the landowner whether he had made a mistake in planting the seed. And they want to know the source of these poisonous weeds. And so to them, it's, it's a mystery. How did this happen? So, so the logical question is, how did the weeds get there? Well, the landowner said it's the enemy that did it. Well, that leads to a second question in our text, and it's this. Should we take out the weeds? And again, notice the landowner's answer is no. <laughs> no, don't take out the weeds. And why? Why did the landowner say that? Because if you take out the weeds, then the wheat would be destroyed in the process. The good fruit, if you will, would be destroyed. And so notice he says, let them grow together until the harvest, and then gather the weeds and burn them. Now, why why would this landowner say that? Well, the reason, my understanding is the reason for that is because there's a problem with 
going and ripping out the weeds among the wheat. And the problem with tearing out the weeds is that their roots would be intertwined and would grow amongst the, the roots of the wheat. And so what would happen is, uh, as you probably know, weeds are quite a hardy thing. Notice what's happened during the, the, uh, the drought that we've had this summer. Like the grass, you know, the grass goes brown, the other stuff goes brown, it stops growing. But, but notice it, if, you, if you look out in a paddock, for example, or in your garden, a lot of times during a drought, what's the only thing that, that is green are the weeds, right? You notice that? And one of the reasons for that is they have a very hardy root system. And that's what's going on here. Uh, Darnell would often, and that's what the weeds were called, Darnell, apparently, they would often have a bigger and stronger root system than the wheat. And they would be intertwined amongst the wheat. And so the landowner knew that, and he said, lest you destroy the wheat, leave the weeds alone. Because you pull out the weed... And you're going to pull out the, the wheat in the process. So to the farmer, it was more important to save the good wheat than to get rid of the weeds. So he's concerned about the, the wheat, more so than the weeds. And so what does he do here? He actually instructs his workers to leave the weeds until the harvest. And then he says, then we'll sort out the weeds from the wheat. Okay? Hopefully we're all clear on what's, what's going on here. Now, before we get into the, the next parable, which is the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast, let me say this, okay? Remember, Jesus is, is often attempting to answer questions, particularly his disciples would have. And that's why he's, he's he, one, of the, well, one of the reasons he's talking in parable form. And the two short parables answer two related questions. First, how can such a small beginning... And by that, he's talking about a group of uneducated, inexperienced men. How can those men be referred to as a kingdom that's going to have a big impact on the world? This is the impact that was prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, you'll see a quotation. Matthew actually quotes from one of the Psalms. Well, that's one of the questions that Jesus is going to answer for us here. Number two, since Jesus' kingdom was not the powerful military and political takeover so widely expected, how can such a humble beginning be referred to as a powerful, world-changing kingdom of heaven? How can that be? I mean, what is Jesus thinking, after all? I'm sure Jesus... Disciples were thinking these sort of things, and they wanted Jesus to explain these parables later on, which we'll get to the, the explanation of one of them in a moment. Well, what is Jesus thinking? Well, Jesus was helping the faithful here, in this case the disciples, to see the outward appearances really count for very little. In fact, we see elsewhere in Scripture, man, what does man look at? Man looks at the outward appearance God looks at the heart. God can, in other words, God can see things that we can't. And so, uh, hopefully this was very helpful to Jesus' disciples. And so in contrast to, to appearances, the power of God is something that's very powerful. God can work in, in ways that uh, we often don't 
don't even see. And, and God chooses to work through humble instruments oftentimes. Humble instruments. And in this case, these were uneducated men, inexperienced, but God used them to turn the world right side up in many ways. And so we see a glorious influence of the kingdom, and God used these humble instruments to accomplish His purposes. And so these are just some of the the issues that Jesus is addressing in the parables. So keep that in mind as we come now to the parable of the mustard seed in verse 31. Look at Matthew 13, verse 31. He, that's Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. Now, I don't know if you're paying attention to these various parables that Jesus is mentioning here, but did you, have you noticed so far that this is the third parable that Jesus has given here in this context, in Matthew 13, that deals with a sower and seed. So again, the focus is on the thing that's growing, not the sower. It's on the thing that is growing. In this case, we have a seed. And this time we need to see the contrast between the beginning and the end product. And Jesus is telling us the beginning is something that's small, but it, it actually grows into something significantly larger than what it started with. The mustard seed, by the way, was the smallest of the commonly used garden seeds in that particular culture. And so thus the mustard seed was, was, uh, was a, a natural choice for Jesus to use. It was something that, that everybody knew. It was something very, very small. In fact, they've given you a picture there. Uh, you might, it's so small you may not even be able to see it. That little black dot in that person's hand is a mustard seed. Very small. So in Jesus' day, this was the thing that, that they thought of all the, the, the common garden plants that they used. This was the smallest of them. Now, today we know it's not the smallest seed in the entire world. But in Jesus' day, of their garden plants that they used, that was the smallest. And so Jesus chose it because it, it also produces a full-grown bush that becomes very large, and when compared to the size of the original seed, it's, it's of course, significantly bigger. And there's some, some Arab gentlemen standing next to a mustard bush. Uh, and and that's, that's not even the biggest one. They can actually get uh, even bigger than that. In fact, from what, my, what I was reading, the plant can sometimes reach as high as 15 feet or 5 meters. So they can become quite big compared to the size of the seed. So what's, you say, what is the point in all of this? Why is Jesus talking about this? Well, remember, Jesus' followers must have been discouraged as a result of the hostility and the rejection and this oppression that, that Jesus was getting, particularly from the religious leaders. The, the hostility was growing against Jesus, particularly we've seen that in chapter 11 and 12. And, 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 and you know, they gave up their lifestyle, their livelihood to follow Jesus. And they're, they're thinking, you know, that, that good things were to come, but it didn't seem like it was going to, to come to fruition. 
And maybe they're starting to wonder, hey, did we make a mistake? And so Jesus' parable encouraged them, hey, no, guys, don't give up. Keep up hope. In this case, keep up hope in the power of God. There is a kingdom. It is going to grow. It's going to start small, but it will grow. <laughs> and, and I'm going to use you guys, you, you humble instruments. You are small beginnings, but it will grow. So that's the parable of the mustard seed. Let's look at the next parable that Jesus gives, the parable of the yeast, or some Bibles use the word leaven. Look at verse 33. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, leaven or yeast is something similar to mustard seed. It's something that's, you might say, that's small. And if you ever do any baking, say of bread, for example, you probably know it doesn't take a whole lot of yeast to affect a, a whole lump of dough. And so yeast is similar to the mustard seed in the fact that it's in its smallness as well as the, the great effect it had on the dough. And so the message that Jesus is giving here is something that's similar to the mustard seed parable, which is why I think it's appropriate for us to preach these together. And so the message is about the insignificant thing here that's actually growing to something that's significant, something that is great. Now, as you look at verse 33, let me just highlight something for you. The amount of dough is highly unusual. And, and since, since we, don't, uh, we aren't really familiar with the measurements of Jesus' day, uh, listen to what this commentator said about this verse. Quote, Three measures equals 39 liters or 14 gallons, about 50 pounds of flour. Thus, this is not a daily event, but a banquet. That much would feed 100 to 150 people. So Jesus is saying that an insignificant amount of yeast dough could permeate an entire village. Often yeast occurs as a negative image, describing the spreading power of evil, but here it is positive, speaking of the spread of the kingdom in history, end quote. Okay? Now, some of you might be thinking of passages of Scripture where, where God uses leaven or yeast in a negative way, but it's not always used that way, okay? So please don't think of it that way. That's not, I, I don't believe that's what Jesus is intending here. He's talking about the spread of His kingdom. Of course, that's a good thing. So it needs to be taken in a positive light. Now, the key to understanding the parable of the yeast or leaven is to note that Jesus said the woman, what does she do? Notice what the text says. She mixed the yeast into this rather large amount of flour, enough to feed maybe up to 150 people. And she's working it through the dough just like... Um, anyway, as you saw in the picture earlier. But this little bit of, of yeast worked its way unseen through the entire lump. And that's what yeast does. A little bit goes a long ways. And what does it do? It, it radically changes the, the nature of that wheat. 
It changes its size. It changes its shape when yeast is used appropriately. And that's the point that Jesus is making. This is something that, of course, Jesus' listeners would have understood. If you've never done baking, you might have a little bit of a cultural barrier here. So my suggestion is get some yeast, put it in some dough, and find out what happens if you're not understanding what Jesus is saying here. But the point is this, that the internal, unseen power of yeast stimulates enormous internal growth within the dough. It can actually take a little piece of dough and make it rise and and become something bigger. And that's the point that Jesus is is making. The point, of course, Jesus made is, is there is within people, within his kingdom, if you will, there's an eternal, an eternal dynamic of rising as opposed to the outward physical organization. So Jesus isn't talking about a physical organization. He's talking about something spiritual. His kingdom is spiritual. It's not physical. In other words, his kingdom was gonna, will grow through an internal, unseen, spiritual dynamic. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came, he said, to rescue souls. He did not come to capture land. Jesus did not come to set up seats of civil power. He didn't do that. That's not why he came, at least the first time. Nevertheless, the message of the kingdom would spread through the entire world. Praise God for that. So that's the the point of the message here. Well, starting in verse 34, Jesus gives uh, another discourse on parables. In case we didn't get it the first time, in the parable of the soils, Jesus elaborates on these parables. Look at verse 34. Verse 34, he says, All these things... Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So that's Jesus' discourse on parables. Now, this is interesting. If you look at verse 34... Uh, Matthew tells us the same truth, but he he starts by telling us the truth positively. And then in the next sense, uh, the next sentence, I should say, he tells us the same sort of truth negatively. So first of all, he tells it in a positive way, then in a negative way. Now, why did Jesus speak in parables? Jesus considered the crowds to be outsiders, remember? They were the, the, the first three kinds of soils the ones that never actually bore fruit. And so Jesus is actually rejecting those who are not willing to open their ears to hear the truth. They're not willing to accept Jesus Christ. And so this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. And so if if you look at the whole book of Matthew as a whole, think of Matthew 13 as kind of like a hinge on on which the, the book is swinging. Jesus' ministry is swinging, if you will. And so he turns from the crowd's And now he's going to spend the rest of the book primarily focusing on this small band of disciples. Verse 35 gives us another purpose of the parables. The purpose is to show that Jesus' use of parables was in order to fulfill prophecy. Interestingly enough, you look at verse 35, this is is Matthew's quotation of Psalm 78. 
So Psalm 78, at least a portion of Psalm 78, is Christology. It's, it's, it's fulfillment in Christ. Now, a lot of people wouldn't probably have known that unless, unless uh, Matthew had said it here, but it is. So why the book of Psalms, though? I mean, this, and, and why particularly Psalm 78? If you read Psalm 78, it's a very long chapter, but anyway, uh, it talks about the nation of Israel and God's dealings. It talks about their rejection, which is what was happening in Jesus' day. So it's a very appropriate chapter in that regard. But why the book of Psalms? Well, you need to understand how Matthew thinks. Matthew's a Jew, writing to Jews, showing that Jesus is king. He's their Messiah. And so you also need to understand, Matthew knows at least a little bit of the Old Testament. He believes the Old Testament. So for him, the whole Old Testament, since it comes from God, for him, it's all of it's prophetic. So for him, you know, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book except for Romans. He's constantly quoting the Old Testament. And so for him, it's, it's really all prophetic. So we shouldn't be surprised he quotes from the book of Psalms here. Well, then we come to the explanation of the parable of the weeds. So let's look at the explanation of the parable of weeds. First of all, in verse 36, we have the setting. And let me just highlight a few words as we look at verse 36. Because it says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. All right, so... Look at verse 36, because up to this point in time, Jesus was speaking publicly to the crowds. But now, what does he do? He, he continued his conversation, but not to the crowds. He actually goes into the house, and he starts talking to his disciples in private, and only to his disciples. And by the way, the house. Whose house is this? What house is this referring to? Well, if you look at the greater context, the preceding context... I think the house is likely the same house in which Jesus defined his new family. I think it's the same house in which Jesus left and he went to the shore to teach. I think it's the the house, it was probably Peter's home in Capernaum, which is kind of the central area where Jesus centered most of his earthly ministry. But anyway, it was there that Jesus' disciples requested this explanation of the parable of the weeds. So let's look at Jesus' explanation, starting in verse 37. So he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Let's just stop there. Let me just say something here. Okay. In regards to interpretation, uh, we don't need to wonder about most of the stuff here, do we? Jesus has already interpreted his parable for us. And by the way, let me say this also about parables. Not all the details are important. Okay? Some people go overboard and they, they, try to, they try to find some little nitty-gritty gritty detail and make a big deal out of it. If Jesus didn't tell you the interpretation, then it's not that important. 
So let's just focus on what Jesus has interpreted for us, okay? Number one, we see the sower is, well, Jesus calls himself here the Son of Man. So we know that's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. So what is he talking about? He's talking about himself. Jesus is the sower in in the parable here. And by the way, Son of Man, uh, that's an interesting title. Within that title, we see Jesus' humanity as well as his deity. So in the, in the word son, we see Jesus' deity. In the word man, of course, we see his humanity. And by the way, Jesus has two natures combined into one person. All right? He is both. He is fully God and fully man in one person. And by the way, forever he will maintain his humanity. And this is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, even not only in Luke, but also in the book of Matthew. Well, Jesus goes on to say that the field is the world. And by the way, let me just say this. Notice Jesus did not say the church. He didn't say the field is the church. He said the field is the world. And I, and I say the church because uh, um, I, I've heard some people say that, that Jesus is referring to the church here. No, he's not. He says the world. And so what does this indicate for us? Well, it indicates that the good seed is widely distributed. It denotes the entire population of the earth. In other words, the field is the entire population of the earth. And Jesus is the sower. But he says the good seed is the kingdom citizens. In other words, we're talking about true believers. We're talking about genuine Christians. These people are the ones who... If you go back to the previous uh, parable, remember, they're the ones who actually receive and respond to the Word of God. They're characterized by their relationship to the kingdom. They are the ones who actually belong to the kingdom. Then Jesus says the weeds are Satan's followers. In other words, they're unbelievers. They're ones who've never received the Word, and they haven't responded to the Word. They, They do not bear fruit. And in fact, they belong to the evil one. But the Bible says they can only flourish for a time because harvest is coming. Notice Jesus describes the enemy as the devil. He is the devil. In other words, he is Satan. And the harvest is the end of the age. And and end, by the way, points to the consummation. And the word age is pointing to this whole life. And so in this context, those words can be used a little differently in various contexts, but in this particular context, present age is is clearly what Jesus has in mind. In other words, Jesus is speaking of the end of this life as you and I know it. That's when the harvest will take place. Who are the harvesters? Notice Jesus says they're the angels. They're the angels. Well, those are the details that are most important because those are the ones that Jesus interpreted for us. But if you look at verse 40, we see that the, uh, the harvest is at the end of the age. Look, look at verse 40 because it says here that uh, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, 
and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, the harvest is at the end of the age. You say, well, when's that? Well, I've kind of already elaborated on that, but... The word end or close in some Bibles means completion. So we're talking about the completion of this age, this present age we live in. So the gathering and then the burning of these weeds, what's that represent? Well, that represents the gathering of all unsaved men and women for a very unpleasant situation, right? Notice Jesus believes in a real place of torment called hell. And Jesus does not pull his punches. Jesus says it the way it is. He knows there is a place called hell, and he says there is a place reserved. It is a place of punishment, and this place is for all those who reject Jesus Christ. Notice again in verse 41, Jesus uses the title Son of Man. And this time he's describing himself in in the role of judge at the completion of earth's history. He is the one who knows all things and will determine who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. And he says, he talks about these lawbreakers. Who are these lawbreakers anyway? Well, uh, they are evil people who cause sin and continually break God's laws. So this is interesting. So not only do... These people disobey God, but notice Jesus says they're also bringing people into sin with them. They're causing other people to stumble and fall. Well, that sounds a bit like Romans chapter 1, doesn't it? And what's going to happen to these people? Jesus said, hey, they're going to go to the real place of eternal torment, which the Bible calls hell. Well, verse 43 ends on a good note. Praise the Lord for that, because... Of course, that's not very good news. But look at verse 43. In contrast to the evil people, there are those who will enter into a glorious eternity with who? With their father. And the one who already enjoys this blessed relationship and communion with his father is telling other people, you can enjoy it too. He can be your father. And throughout Scripture, by the way, the picture of brightly shining light often refers to God's perfect righteousness and glory. And in fact, read the book of Revelation, you see there is no need of a sun or moon or artificial light. Because why? Because God and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, shine forth their glory and their light in the new Jerusalem, which is the capital city of heaven. And here, finally is the hope of the kingdom as it was meant to be. You say, well, what's that? Well, number one, evil's been purged. Evil's gone. Sin's gone. And second of all, the Father is present, and He's present in person. He's not just some some mystical force out there some way. No, He's present in person, and He is there with His children. And notice His children have been purged of sin, and as a result of that, look, look, if you see what it says there, it says they're now shining with His perfect righteousness, just as God shines light. He's light. We also are 
children of light, if God is truly our Father. So, so you know what I have to say to that? I say, Amen! Hallelujah! Well, Jesus ends with some last words, which, by the way, are a command. If you look at Jesus' last words in verse 43, Jesus ends this particular section with a charge, and he says, hey, you, listen up, listen carefully to what I'm saying. So my friend, let me say this to you. If Jesus was here, he would say, don't ignore these important words that Jesus is teaching in this section. Those who ignore these truths will do so at their own peril. That's what Jesus is saying there. So if you have these spiritual ears, these spiritual eyes, use them. Pray that God, by His grace, would grant you the ability, the enabling, to see and hear what He's teaching. That is a work of God in your life if you're able to do that. Okay, You need to pray for that. Well, how can we apply these truths to our own lives? Number one, don't be fooled by looks. Because looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. In in the parable of the mustard seed, the kingdom was present in Jesus Christ. And his unimpressive disciples didn't seem to amount to much, did they? They were not very impressive. In fact, they were often doubting. They, they, they seemed to have little faith. And it really wasn't until the resurrection of Christ that they seemed to kind of get their act together. Very unimpressive group that Jesus chose. But, as you know, looks are deceiving. God had his hand on this very small group of people. And God did, did amazing things through them. And that's the way it is today. The power of the cross seems hidden in the world at, as a whole, anyway. Yet, what we see in Scripture is that those who actually mock the truths of the kingdom, you know what's going to happen to them? Inevitably, they're going to lose. God says they will lose. In the end, God will triumph. So don't be fooled by looks. They can be deceiving. Number two, we see the kingdom will continue to grow. The kingdom will continue to grow. So just like yeast or leaven... The kingdom will continue to grow until it does what? It's going to permeate the world. As I was, as I was reading this, I was thinking of those precious uh, scripture passages in Revelation 4 and chapter 5 where, where it says that before the throne of God we see people from all tribes and people and nations of the earth who are there worshiping God and the Lamb. Well, that's the end result of of Jesus' teaching here of the kingdom. The kingdom is growing. Sure, maybe it's not to the point that I I would like to see, but nevertheless, it is growing. Well, how do we know this? Well, Jesus promised, number one, that growth is going to signify the kingdom community. And by the way, if you know anything about history, within 400 years of Christ's earthly life, it's interesting that Rome was conquered, The Greco-Roman gods were displaced. Now, I don't totally agree with with what what ended up happening, by the way. But nevertheless, that's what happened. And the same is happening in our own day. Again, maybe not to the extent that you and I like to see it, but it nevertheless is happening. People are changing. People are coming to Christ. 
Churches are being established. And because God is still in control, we see phenomenal growth today. Maybe not in New Zealand. But there is phenomenal growth going on in places like South Korea and China, Latin America, Africa, just to name a few places. Again, maybe not to the point we'd like to see it, but nevertheless, God is in control. The yeast is, is working its way through the dough. And God is making worshipers from every tribe, nation, and people. Number three. King Jesus demands full commitment from his followers. He commands a radical discipleship that does not leave room for wishy-washy, nominal, so-called Christians. That's one of the things we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, is that Jesus is king. That demands radical discipleship. Being a devoted follower of Christ is something that's never been easy, and nor will it ever be easy, at least in this life. His truths take time, they take effort to understand, to unlock. All right? They're hidden realities that can only be known by serious Bible study. It's going to take commitment on your part. It's going to require you to, to, to use some spiritual sweat. Okay? To understand God's spiritual truth, you, it, it's not as easy as uh, you know, plugging your brain into to some, some uh, spiritual UPS or USB port or something like that. Sorry. Right? God, you know, he, there's not some cable coming from heaven with ultra-fast broadband where you can just plug it into your brain. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> requires you to do some reading and some Bible study and, and prayer. It requires absolute commitment to Christ. <laughs> and so this is the problem with the popular uh, church movement of our time. We, uh, too many people expect Christianity to be like a microwave. You know, we, we, we want our, our food to be instant. We like, you know, some people like microwave food. You know, they want to come home and... You know, throw the, throw the frozen food into the microwave, and in two minutes it's ready to eat. It doesn't work that way with spiritual food. Well, sadly, an approach, that kind of an approach produces weak churchgoers who don't know how to walk the walk or talk the talk. King Jesus demands full commitment from his followers. Number four, be in the world but not of the world. You've probably heard that elsewhere in Scripture, but that's kind of one of the emphases emphases that Jesus is making here. In other words, what I'm saying is this. You and I need to live as part of, yet apart from the world. Right? We're in it, but we we can't believe its, its worldly philosophies and beliefs. Well, as we saw in the parable, wheat and weeds live together. Right? Jesus said they're going to exist side by side until the end of this present age, until the harvest time. So you and I are going to rub shoulders with unbelievers. We live in a, we, we live in a world where, where most of, of the people are on that broad road to destruction. We're not on that road if we're Christians. And so we're going to rub shoulders to shoulders with with people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. They've never put their faith in Him. And sometimes 
even within the church, it, it can be very difficult to tell who's the insider and who's the outsider. All right? Just because someone professes to be a Christian doesn't make them one. Just like standing in, in a shed isn't going to make you a car. Okay? Just because you attend a church service isn't going to make you a Christian. <laughs> right? And so Christians have to shine their light within the darkness of the world and never be cloistered by themselves. That's not helpful. Okay? Yes, at moments in time, we can kind of come together in a, in a church service, for example. Church services should be for believers. All right? But we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, kind of set up ourselves all by ourselves and never rub shoulders with unbelievers. That should never happen. Okay? And if you find yourself, uh, you know, in that kind of a situation, you need to purposely get outside your comfort zones and put yourself in situations where you are with unbelievers. Yes, I know that's uncomfortable. Trust me. <laughs> it's like... You know, as I go to the university and, and sit with unbelievers and talk to them about Christ, at first that's, that's a difficult thing to do. But it's helpful to get outside my comfort zone and, and go and be with unbelievers and tell them about Christ. I need to do that. I need to get out of my office, which is a very comfortable place to be, where I'm surrounded by all my dead friends as well as some who are still alive. And by that I mean my books. It's a great place to be. It's a very comfortable place to be. But that's not where God wants me to be all the time. That's not where God wants you to be all the time. Next, we see that you should not be surprised that evil is flourishing. Jesus said that evil is going to exist till the close of this age, to the end of this present world that we live in. And so after all, I mean, think about this. What kind of a world are we living in? Well, ever since Genesis 3, the Bible says we live in a fallen world. And by that, I mean a, a sin-cursed world. Thanks to our father and mother, we were born in sin. That is our position. That is our state. And so we should not be surprised then when our, our, our government goes and wants to make pro-homosexual laws and wants to attack families. That shouldn't surprise us in the least. In fact, that's what we should expect from unbelievers, shouldn't we? And, of course, it's right to fight those kind of laws that are anti-God and anti-Bible, but it's wrong to expect to try to turn our country into a purely Christian nation. It never was and never will be. So don't be surprised that evil's flourishing. But another thing we can think of here is that Satan is at work in this world. And we need, to, we need to kind of get our heads out of the sand, so to speak. Sometimes we, we, we don't think about this enough. Some people think about it too much. But Satan is at work in this world. This is the age of cosmic conflict. There is world battle, there's, there's a worldview battle going on. Sadly, too many Christians are hardly aware of the battle. They they, they kind of live in la-la land, their fantasy world, where there seems to be no demonic presence. Well, that's not reality. <laughs> there is a demonic presence. And so that's a, a very serious mistake to make, to assume there is no demonic presence around us, that Satan does not exist. Well, the Bible says you and I are up against a roaring lion who looks for people to devour. 
That's reality. Well, last of all, we see that evil will be destroyed at the end of the age. Evil will be destroyed at the end of the age. So, so evil is present. So yes, God is allowing evil to flourish at the moment. But don't forget, it, it, has, a, it has a time limit. It's a, bit, it's a bit like putting money into a machine. You, know, you might be playing a game. At some point, the time will run out and the game is going to finish. So this world might be having their fun now, but there is a time when the, the fun will end and then punishment begins. Evil will be destroyed. So my friend, don't forget, the Bible says, we brought sin into this world, Romans 5 says, but God's not going to allow it to remain until... Well, sorry, God will allow it to remain, but it has a short time period. Only to the end of this age is finished. And then God has a certain amount of suffering, a certain amount of martyrs, and then when, those, the, when, when the certain amount of martyrs comes to, a, to an end, God will remove evil once and for, for all from this earth. So until that time, the children of the kingdom, the children of the evil one, are going to exist side by side, just like wheat and weeds. But here's the good news. <laughs> okay, Here's the good news. The end is coming, my friend. Don't forget that. The end is coming. And when it does, you and I can be certain that God's every decision is going to be absolutely right. <laughs> he is the just judge of the universe. And He never makes mistakes. So the believers will get, hopefully, what they don't deserve. And the unbelievers will get what they deserve. Well, let's not forget who taught these parables. When Jesus taught with parables, he was delivering more than just mere stories for his listeners. These, these weren't for entertainment. He was communicating important spiritual truths. And notice he says it's for those who have eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear. So those with limited vision and understanding, what did they hear? Well, they only heard interesting stories. And those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, well, they, they understood much more. And they wanted to press on and find that, that meaning from Jesus. They, they were able to understand these deep spiritual truths. So with one spiritualized, the full spectrum of truth can then become visible. So my friend, let me ask you this. Are you viewing the world with an earthly, temporal vision? Or are you seeing with far-reaching spiritual vision? How's your vision? How's your vision? I hope it's with a far-reaching spiritual vision. May God give us these spiritual ears and eyes to see His truth.